the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. When his pride and ego got wounded, he dishonored the woman he loved, and then he got angry and restless. And then he engaged in an adventure, in his case it was this military adventure, to try to bolster his pride and ego around the world because it had been wounded earlier. Only to find out that the result was greater humiliation and defeat for this guy. I've met a thousand Xerxes in my life. The truth of the matter is there's a little bit of Xerxes in every single man. This is Cornerstone Connection the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Esther. Have you ever allowed your pride to dig you in such a big hole that it took a very long time to crawl back out of it? Today, Pastor Gary will be explaining how the king of Persia allowed his pride to get the best of him and made decisions in order to bolster his appearance, yet he failed miserably. As Christians, we should know better than to allow pride to grow within us. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In order to walk in victory in this life, we need as much of God's grace as we can get. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Esther, Chapter 2, for Part 1 of today's message titled, The Misery of Our Glory. Esther, Chapter 2, here's a little background before we read. When we last left off in chapter 1, Queen Vashti of Persia rightly refused her husband's request for her to sexually parade herself in front of his drunken dinner guests. And as a result of her refusal, she was deposed. Uh, Rabbinic tradition says that she was probably even killed, although the Bible doesn't say that. However, it is the last that we hear of Queen Vashti. When King Xerxes, who is king of Persia at this time, when he was refused... And if you have a King James Bible, his name is Ahasuerus. His Hebrew name is Ahasuerosh. When he was refused like this by Queen Vashti, I mean, you know, you're you're the most powerful guy on the planet at this time. And even though his request was completely illegitimate, when he was refused like this, his pride and his ego was wounded. His royal ego was stepped on. And so history tells us. Now, this is something we learn from history, not in the Bible, but Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that in the same year that this story happens, 480 B.C., and likely as a result of being rebuffed by his wife, he is enraged and he storms off to war. 
and he engages the Greeks in a battle of Salamis. It was a naval battle. Herodotus tells us that King Xerxes took 2 million soldiers and 4,000 ships, went to the Greek islands. Uh, the Battle of Salamis is fought just on the northern part of the, sea of the Aegean Sea, uh, a little gulf called uh, the Saronic Gulf, and he suffers a terrible defeat. He regroups and spends about a year in Thessaly, and then he launches another attack against the Greeks, this time on land. It is the Battle of Plataea, roughly 479 B.C., and he again suffers a terrible loss. In two years, he suffered as many military losses. So those things occur between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. You might want to write in the margin of your Bible that there is about a two to three year gap between Esther 1 and Esther 2, during which time history tells us he lost those two battles. Now, I share all that because you need to get the context, the frame of mind, when we read chapter 2. Because when Xerxes comes back to the citadel of Persia, he's a defeated and a sullen man. His best friend is Jack Daniels at this point. Okay, friends? You understand what I'm talking about? Now, gentlemen, hear me on this, because this is a point to learn from Xerxes, and this is all part of the introduction at no extra charge. But guys, hear me on this. We need to learn a lesson from Xerxes. Okay? I know how our modern culture has portrayed King Xerxes of late. Okay, there was a movie done a few years ago called 300. I've only seen clips of it. I've never seen the movie, and I don't recommend it. And there's also a video game some of you guys might play called Assassin's Creed that also has Xerxes in it. I've never played the game. I don't recommend it. I'm just simply telling you that there's some modern portrayals of Xerxes as this godlike warrior who is this, uh, this specimen of, of masculinity, just ripped and, and, you know, buff in every way. And he's just the, you know, the representation of male bravery and courage. And let, let me just, let me give you the update, okay? Because that's how modern revisionism has portrayed this guy. When you read chapter 2, he is a weak and a broken man. He is sullen and defeated. And this is the caution for men. Listen to me on this. When his pride and ego got wounded, he dishonored the woman he loved, and then he got angry and restless, and then he engaged in an adventure, in his case it was this military adventure, to try to bolster his pride and ego around the world because it had been wounded earlier, only to find out that the result was greater humiliation and defeat for this guy. I've met a thousand Xerxes in my life. The truth of the matter is there's a little bit of Xerxes in every single man. You get your pride stepped on or your ego wounded. And if you don't confess pride as sin, and if you don't get your ego, that is your identity, grounded in Christ, let me tell you what often happens. You end up dishonoring a woman in your life. You end up getting angry and resentful. You end up then seeking often immoral adventures to try to bolster your pride and ego again, only in the end to suffer greater defeat and humiliation. It is the pathway of Xerxes. Now the good news is that if we come before the Lord and we confess our pride and if we get that sin in the right place before Him, and if we take our ego and get our identity grounded in Christ, then it will go a long way to prevent us from doing sinful and foolish things. Does Does every guy understand what I'm talking about? Because when, when pride happens and when egos get inflated, we end up doing sinful and foolish things. That's the story of Xerxes. 
So when we read chapter 2, this is the kind of guy that he is right now. He's defeated. He's sullen. And it actually hints to us at the beginning of chapter 2 that he may very well actually have regretted the drunken, rash decision that he made about deposing his wife and perhaps even executing her. There's a hint of it here in chapter 2. I mean, you know, again, a couple of years have passed since chapter 1. You've experienced two major military defeats. The world laughs at you now. Your wife is gone, if not dead. And you come back to an empty palace. You're just sullen and lonely and defeated. And so in those moments, we can begin to think about life in the rearview mirror. We can have some regrets. And that's probably what's happening here in chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, and then we'll jump to chapter 3. Verse 1. It says, Later... When the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. And then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Well, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Of course he did. And now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Now circle his name. He's an important character through the book of Esther. His name is mentioned 58 times in the book of Esther, and he is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And by the way, he's mentioned a little bit more than Esther's. Esther's mentioned 55 times in this book that bears her name, but she also is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So we're introduced here to Mordecai. He's a Jew. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. And he's the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who, referring to Kish, had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named here she is, Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. And when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her, national and family, her nationality and family background. Note that. Because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day she walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem... This is Mordecai. He walks back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Now, please note verse 14. We'll come back to this. Notice this. In the evening... She would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Jump down now to chapter 3. Just going to read the first six verses. 
After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. Now we're introduced to another person. Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Let's pause there and pray. Father, as we now take our Bibles in hand and as we look into the ancient story of Esther, we pray that you would give us a modern understanding of how your truth is timeless, Lord, even for us today, and that we would put ourselves in this story and and come to appreciate and understand all that you're doing here, Lord. And we thank you for your grace and your love over us this day. We pray that you would minister to our hearts, and we thank you and love you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I want you to think of God, figuratively speaking, as having two hands. His one hand is is the way that he works visible, tangible ways. We call those things miracles. Then he has another hand in which he does unseen, invisible things behind the scenes. We call that providence. God has, if you will, two hands. The visible expression of his power, miracles. The invisible expression of his power, providence. And by the way, his providence is no less powerful than the visible displays of his miracles. It's just that we are often more, you know, curious about the visible displays. We're drawn to the miraculous, all the while not realizing that God is working in very miraculous ways behind the scenes, orchestrating events and arranging things and weaving the tapestry of our lives for his purposes. The book of Esther is a book about the providence of God. It is about the unseen hand of God. And God is so unseen in the book of Esther that he doesn't appear by name a single time. There's not a single reference to God by name, by title, or even by inference. He is not revealed visibly, but he is evident all throughout the book of Esther. He begins to move in a providential way, orchestrating events in this story, particularly for the purpose of the saving of his own people, the Jewish race. And so what happens is there is a vacancy on the queen's throne after Vashti has been deposed or perhaps even killed for refusing to entertain her husband's drunken frat brothers. And so when the vacancy occurs, God begins to work providentially. He's going to elevate Esther to the queen's position here working behind the scenes, because what nobody knows except God, and what we have the advantage of knowing because we have the book of Esther, is that there will soon be a a satanic evil plot instigated by Haman, the guy that we're introduced to in chapter 3, in an attempt to exterminate, to annihilate the entire Jewish race. God knowing this, because he knows all things, nothing catches God by surprise, right? He works in 
providential ways, even in your life and in my life, in ways we can't even understand or see, probably sometimes never until we get to be with Him. And oftentimes we can look in the rearview mirror of our lives and we can begin to realize God was at work there and God did this. And now that we see His providential hand. So God, knowing that this satanic plot is afoot, He providentially intervenes and He's going to move Esther through a series of events here to position her in a very influential st- strategic role as the next queen of Persia. And so this is how it happens. Uh, Xerxes is sullen after his military defeats. He's maybe even regretting the decision he made with Vashti. And some of his single buddies come up to him and say, you know what you need? You know what will get you out of the dumps? You need a good woman. You need another woman to come and take Vashti's place. Here's what we recommend that you do. Why don't you start, King Xerxes, why don't you start to host the first Miss Persia contest? Donald Trump will pay for it. We'll have the first Miss Persia contest, and we'll, we'll ask them some incredible questions, like how are you going to eradicate world hunger? And, and we'll, we'll tell them to wear the prettiest evening gown. We'll have them compete in evening gown and talent and, and swimsuit. The whole thing's going to be fantastic. And at the end of the competition, you'll be the sole judge. No panel of judges. You'll be the sole judge, and you will pick Miss Persia, and she'll become the new queen of Persia. What do you think? Well, Xerxes loved it, of course. He's like, yeah, this sounds terrific. Why don't you get a bunch of young, beautiful virgins, and you come to my, bring them to my palace, and I'll choose them. And so this is what begins to happen. And, and one who is among the finalists of Miss Persia contest is none other than Esther herself, the one after whom this book is named. Now, Esther is not her given Jewish name. She is Jewish. Her given Jewish name, chapter 2, verse 7, tells us was Hadassah. Hadassah in Hebrew means myrtle. It's a beautiful tree. It's a beautiful name. But she is given a a Babylonian Persian name after the goddess of fertility, Ishtar. Her name is Esther, and that's her name throughout the book. Because she's living in Persia, okay? She's a Jew living in Persia as a result of the exiles that had been taken in captivity to Persia under King Nebuchadnezzar. But, remember this story takes place between... Ezra chapter 6 and 7, the first group of 50,000 Jewish exiles have already gone back to Jerusalem. For whatever reason, her family has decided to stay here in Persia. And here she is among the finalists in the Miss Persia contest. We know from chapter 2 that she is an orphan. Her parents have died. We know from chapter 2 that Mordecai, who is her older cousin, has taken on the role of being the guardian parent. He's like a father to her. Mordecai, again, mentioned 58 times throughout the book of Esther. He is someone that God will use to encourage her and to give her counsel and wisdom. As part of the selection process for replacing the the queen, all of these contestants are brought together to the palace where they undergo, chapter 2 tells us, 12 months of beauty treatments. A whole year. A whole year of beauty treatments for one encounter with the king. It tells us six months of treatments with myrrh and six months of perfumes and cosmetics. Beauty is expensive. (laughs) All the men say, ultra expensive. (laughs) Did you know I happened to look up some stats in preparation for this study? (laughs) That American women spend more money on cosmetics than any other country in the world. American women, how much do you spend on cosmetics? I'm glad you asked. This is how much you spend. 
$27.6 billion every year on cosmetics. That's what women spend in America, $27.6 billion. I had a man come up to me after last night's service, and he said, yeah, I think my wife bought a billion of it herself. (laughs) $27.6 billion. And by the way, a little etymology on the word cosmetics, which is just a fancy word for saying, what is the root of the word cosmetics? You might be curious to know, it is from the Greek word cosmos, which means a well-ordered universe. So, ladies... If your universe needs to be well-ordered, it's fine. It's in the Bible. Let's move on. Now, not just a year of beauty treatments, but also, and this gets a little more serious, look at verse 14 again. Verse 14 tells us that the girls would be required to take turns spending the night with the king. They'd have to sleep with the king. You would go through all these beauty treatments for one year to have one night with the king. You'd go to his bed. And if he liked you, he'd call you back. And if he didn't like you, the text tells us, he would send them away until one girl was left standing. That was the selection process. And the one left standing was Esther. Look further down in chapter 2, verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. All right? So Esther is now chosen to replace Vashti as the new queen of Persia. At the time that Xerxes picks her, best guess is that Esther is between 18 to 20 years of age. And Xerxes, we know historically, was about 35. Okay? Now... If you think this is a terrible way to choose a wife, you're right. I mean, the idea that there would be a contest between a bunch of beautiful women who are recruited to impress a single guy, and then the guy sleeps with the finalists until one is left standing, if that's bothersome to you, like, that's a terrible way to choose a wife, you're right. It should be bothersome. And if that's bothersome to you, then so should the TV show. You're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Well, just use your imagination. Could, who in their right mind would think that a reality TV show would actually emerge from this story? The idea that there would be this eligible single bachelor looking to be married. And so what they do is they string a bunch of beautiful women in front of him for him to decide which ones he likes and which ones he doesn't. And the ones he likes, he wants to have another date with. And the ones he doesn't, he sends her home with tears. And then until finally, it gets down to a few final contestants. And then he takes them to the fantasy suite where he just makes sure everything is compatible. And then after all that, it narrows down to one. But who will be that one to step out of the limousine and get that last rose from Xerxes the Bachelor? (laughs) I hate that show. I hate that show. Some of you are like, no, 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 that's so romantic. No, it's not. That's Esther chapter 2. It's just that they get a rose instead of a crown. 
the exact same thing happens. Not much has changed in 2,500 years. It's ridiculous. I think it's dramatic. No, it's not. Only wives are not chosen that way. Only a Persian perv does that kind of a thing. And that's what you have going on here. King Xerxes like, yeah, bring me a bunch of virgin girls. Line them up. I'll sleep with each one. And then I'll decide which one is the one to win the crown. Ridiculous. We would never make a show about that. We're so glad you tuned in for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Be sure to join us next time to continue the story of Queen Esther and discover her courage to help step into difficult or impossible situations. Esther was an orphan and part of an exiled group of people, yet God elevated her and used her in mighty ways. No matter who you are or what your situation is, God can use your life for His glory. He also promises to walk alongside you in every moment, providing strength, courage, and love everlasting. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. And you're invited to join us for weekend services of worship and learning together. Our services are held Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. Or for more in-depth study time in the Word, join us Wednesday nights at 7. If you're not in the area, you can still hear more from Pastor Gary. Live stream our services or download the Cornerstone Connection app, providing you with access to our archive of teachings. Find out more at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're so glad we had this time together today, and we encourage you to join us again for more in the book of Esther right here on Cornerstone Connection. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.